the thing I found discouraging and my family as well is when you look up Guillaume they say a poor prognosis is when you're not walking within six months, which we never really liked to hear because my breathing was so weak for such a long time that it, it held me in the intensive care unit for four months. So I, you know, by the end, I was quite a healthy intensive care patient in comparison to the people around me, but we couldn't get my breathing to strengthen enough to get me out of there for a while. Imagine going from near perfect health, talking, walking, working, and living your best life, to completely paralyzed and fighting for your life within days. Welcome to The Safe Haven, a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life. In this episode, Mallory Bishop shares her experience with an upper respiratory infection gone wrong, with symptoms that progressed so quickly she found herself completely paralyzed from the neck down. The diagnosis was Guillain-Barre syndrome, a very rare neurological disorder where your immune system attacks your nervous system. In Mallory's case, it stripped her peripheral nervous system and left her almost completely paralyzed for months. This story blew my mind, and it also stands to be a perfect example of why I never want to know too much about my guest story before hearing it in full. You'll hear my surprise and disbelief while Mallory shares her experience. So, Mallory, something pretty significant happened to you a few years ago. Fill us in. A few years ago, I got an upper respiratory infection, and uh, it seemed like a normal viral infection. But uh, about a week later, I started to develop really odd symptoms. So um, I had a very, very stiff neck, and I couldn't move it at all, and I couldn't lift anything. And I went to bed thinking I had slept funny on it and thought the next day it would be okay. But I woke up the next morning and I had double vision. And uh, for anyone (laughs) waking up with a symptom like that, it's never good news. Mm -hmm. I thought it could have been a brain tumor or something like that. Um, I went to the local Halberton Hospital a few times. They were trying to diagnose what it is, what it was. They couldn't tell if I had some sort of optical issue um, or if it was autoimmune. So they booked an appointment with an ophthalmologist. Um, So I went back home, tried to rest throughout the day. But uh, the next day I woke up and I was having trouble laying flat and I couldn't, I tried to drink a little bit of smoothie, even though I wasn't hungry, but I hadn't eaten in a while and uh, I couldn't keep it down. So they were starting to realize that my uh, diaphragm was going and I wasn't going to be able to breathe. So hold on, hold on, uh, hold on. Your your diaphragm was going, you're essentially starting to experience these things, but you're at home when this is happening or you're in the hospital. So I'm at home. I went to the hospital a few times, but they kept sending you home. Yeah, because it's such a it's such a rare disorder and it could have been a number of things. It could it could have been, you know, some sort of optical issue, a neurological issue. It mm-hmm. could have been uh, various types of syndromes that affect your affect your nerves. They didn't realize how acute it was. Um another complication was that I had taken a bunch of pain meds. Uh, I'd taken the recommended amount, but I had taken them every four hours when I'd had the neck pain. And um, the doctors were a bit concerned that it could have been um, a side effect of the muscle relaxants I had taken. Mm. So they were kind of waiting on that too. So because it was so rare, it took a little while for it to be diagnosed because it's not often seen. Um, what I had, Guillain-Barre syndrome, it affects about one person in a thousand, in a hundred thousand rather, each year. <laughs> Quite a quite a big number. Um, So it's not something that people often see, and especially in a rural hospital. So yeah, so it took a little while for the diagnosis to come in. So when you said that your diaphragm was starting to go, who kind of was able to indicate that? So um, I couldn't lay flat without feeling like I couldn't breathe. So when I went into the hospital the final time, I was, I couldn't lay down. I was sitting up. I was kind of stooped over and uh, my face had started to severely droop as well. So it it, it appeared almost as though I was having a stroke. It was drooping more on my left side, but because my speech was becoming slurred and I couldn't lay flat without being able to breathe, they were a little bit concerned. Well, they were concerned that I was going to need to be intubated, which they were correct. Eventually, I did need to be intubated. Were you not freaking out at this point? 
I was, but I also felt very terrible. Like I physically, I felt awful. So you're kind of in a daze about, you know, this, this, it's such a surreal experience. You think this could be the end. You don't really know. Um, I had no idea what was going on. I was, I, but you know, I probably appeared pretty calm (laughs) because I, I just didn't know what was happening. I knew I was in the hospital eventually, and that was the best place for me to be. But uh, when they organized for Orange to come and pick me up and fly me, to uh, the ICU in Kingston General Hospital, I had some moments on that uh, helicopter ride thinking, yeah, this might be the end because it was, I was having a lot of trouble breathing. So I, and I had no idea what was happening. It was such a, it was such a fast onset. It just came on suddenly and then I couldn't breathe. So Mm -hmm. were you with your parents at this point too? Um, so I, I have my own home and I live here with my best friend, but I'd had my parents come over the night before because I was getting progressively worse and Mm -hmm. my symptoms were very odd. So my parents and my best friend were taking shifts to watch me overnight because I was getting so progressively worse. It was such a fast onset. So they were taking shifts when we did the final, okay, you have to go to the hospital is when I was, I was throwing up because I couldn't keep anything down. And, uh, that my best friend actually took me to the hospital at that point and they could see how much worse I'd gotten overnight Mm -hmm. from my last appointment where, you know, I had double vision, which is very, very worrying, but it's not as life threatening, obviously, as losing your ability to breathe. So they saw how much worse it was. Yeah. And then they said, okay, time to airlift her because she likely needs to be intubated pretty soon. So that was the the next step there. So the doctor in the Halliburton Hospital will call around to different ICUs in the area and then who has an opening is where you go. Um, The fortunate thing for me is that I lived in Kingston for 11 years and then had moved back to Halliburton in 2016. So I had a good support network in Kingston as well. I'd actually worked in that hospital no way. For the Department of Surgery. Yeah, it was very odd. So I got sent back to a hospital I was extremely familiar with, with a good network of um, people I'd worked with. I'd worked with several people in that building, but also a good community there that knew me well. So it, it worked out well. And, and, and also my parents knew that city well. And so did my best friend who'd also lived there. So it was just, it, it, it worked out well that way. <laughs> you know, out of, mm-hmm. out of all the horrible experiences, it was nice to go to Kingston for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that was uh that was that was scary. And um, for different people, there's different triggers, but often it's a viral infection. So it could be gastro or it could be upper respiratory. And in your case, it was upper respiratory. It was. So it was a. It was what I would describe as a particularly bad cold. It had really knocked me down when I'd had it. Um, I had white spots in the back of my throat, so I actually thought it was strep. And I'd already gone in earlier in the week to. to to get a test, but I tested negative for strep. And I was told that when you have a particularly nasty viral infection, um, it can it can show up similarly to what strep shows up as. So mm-hmm. I was told that it wasn't that. So I went back home. And the thing with Guillain-Barre is that your body's immune system becomes confused by the infection you've gotten and it attacks your peripheral nerve system. So it gets confused at what it's attacking. And uh, for me, it, uh, it, it stripped all of the, the insulation around my nerves. And um, because it, it stripped them so intensely, it was causing axon damage. That's the center of the nerve as well, um, because nerves don't like to be uncovered. <laughs> so yeah, no Yeah, it's definitely an autoimmune disorder because, yeah, it's your body attacking itself. And some cases are very slow in progression, but mine was uh, very, very quick. Yeah, like extremely quick, a matter of days from completely. Now, otherwise, health-wise, you're totally normally healthy otherwise before this. Yes, I will. Yeah, uh, completely healthy. Um, I was 30 years old when it happened and no major health issues at all. Guillain-Barre is not contagious. It's not inherited. Because it's so rare, they don't really know why it affects some people over others. When there's kind of a novel virus, it tends to affect people in higher numbers because the human body hasn't been exposed to this particular virus. So the the I guess the chances of confusion are higher. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, they don't really know why it happens in certain people. So I was just one of the unlucky ones, I guess, in that case. So, mm-hmm. And for some people, it, it, it's a very mild 
both case. It could just affect your arm or your legs or, and it could happen for a week and then, and then get better. But in, in some cases like mine, it's extremely severe and life threatening and it completely paralyzes you. So in a matter of days, you went from completely healthy to completely paralyzed. That's right. Yes. And, uh, it, uh, it continued to worsen as well when I was in the intensive care unit. So I had, I'd been flown in and, and you're given a treatment called IVIG. So it's made out of uh, human plasma. So it's made from a bunch of donors. And uh, basically something in this, this treatment causes your body to correct the mistake it's made. It, 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 and they don't exactly know how it works, but the antibodies correct the way your body has made this mistake and, and you start to heal. So you stop attacking your own nerves. So I was uh, flown in on April 28th, 2017, and I was given that treatment. And uh, I continued to worsen a little bit. I initially had use of my hands, so I could still give a thumbs up or thumbs down. But eventually I lost my hands as well. And then my weakness continued to progress down my legs as well. But it stopped at my ankles. So I was still able to use my feet, which is a good thing because that was the only way I had to communicate for quite a while was to tap my feet out. So my family and uh, and the nurses too, they, they all learned how to just go through the alphabet and I would tap and then and double tap when they made it to the correct letter. It was it was excruciating to communicate that way, but it was the only way I knew how to do it uh, when I only had my feet. Mentally, you're completely there, but physically, there's nothing you can do at this point besides move your feet. No, no, and because your eyes are are muscles as well, so your pupils are completely blown out because they don't have the muscles to constrict. So, and my eyes were closed because I didn't have the ability to open them. So there was no other way. Some people uh, retain use of their eyes. The way my condition worked, it was a variant of Guillain-Barre called Miller-Fisher. So it, it started from my head and it moved its way down. So I lost my eyesight and my ability and I, I had gotten double vision as well. So I lost my ability to use my eyes pretty quickly. So it was a, it was a very odd experience where you lose all your senses but hearing. So you you can't smell because you're on a ventilator. <laughs> it goes by there. You can't see. And for me, I was extremely light sensitive. So even though my eyes were closed, I had sunglasses on in the hospital because mm -hmm. my pupils were so blown out. And you can't feel anything properly because your nerves are stripped. So you're, you're losing your sense of touch as well. And of course you can't eat or taste. So you're, all you can do is hear. Um, for a while, I didn't even want the TV on in my room because it was overwhelming and hearing was the only sense I had left. So I wanted to be able to know when people were walking in and out mm -hmm. of the room. Mm -hmm. And it was really important to me too, because there were so many wires attached to me and so many tests being done and, and so much had to be done for my care because I couldn't move at all, that it was really important for me to know who was in the room, especially when I was really on a lot of painkillers and I was hallucinating a lot. It was important for me to know <laughs> what mm -hmm. was going on around me. So hearing was the only thing I had left. And for a while, because I had laid down for so long because I couldn't move, my inner ear started to have problems too. So my hearing was off. So people had to move closer to my ear as well but it thankfully came back which is good oh but yeah it's such a it, it truly is it's a syndrome where you get completely locked in your body mm -hmm. and you're unable to move mm -hmm. you're unable to do very much about it you're you're in just extreme severe pain too because your muscles are atrophying and you can't really do anything about it and they're spasming and you have intense nerve pain so it just feels like you're body's been set on fire unfortunately that's the way yeah. nerve pain feels yeah right can you explain this nerve stripping thing for me too because I can't really wrap my head around that yeah so so your immune system's obviously attacked your nerves so you, with your nerve you have you have the middle wire so it's almost like a, a a wire that you would plug into the wall so you have the middle part and then you have the protective uh, layer around it and so for my nerves the myelin which is the protective layer around it uh, it was stripped by me, my immune system attacking it 
on all of my peripheral nerves. And then once your nerves are uncovered, it's like exposing a wire and a cord and it, it doesn't fare well with that. So I started to get damage to the center of my nerves as well. So um, some people, when they get milder cases, the myelin might be attacked, which is the insulation around your nerves, but it might heal back relatively quickly. It's when you get axonal damage that it's a little harder. It takes longer for it to recover, basically. Does that help explain it a little bit? Yeah, it does. And so that's what you had ended up with. And it was looking like, so essentially your nerves heal. They will heal themselves. They will. Um, when when people get severe injuries and so on, where they've had complete breaks in their nerves, there's not necessarily under our current medicine a, a good chance of healing. They're working on that, though. They're working on helping to reconnect pathways so people can move and stuff when they've had major injuries and so on. People who have had very severe cases of Guillain-Barre as well can have complete breaks in their nerves. And it's, it's more difficult for your nerve to repair when that's happened. Where I have an advantage is I'm still quite young. So cells are constantly dying and regenerating. Mm -hmm. So my nerves cells will regenerate themselves. And there's a good chance of recovery for me that way to continue to recover. But nerves, once they're damaged, take so long to heal. So there's the, there's the first hit with the ombre where your nerves are completely attacked and, and, and just ravaged and they're just in an awful state. And then you have to wait for them to heal. And then by the time they heal, when you have such a severe case, you're extremely weak. So you're healing at the same time as trying to build your muscle mm -hmm. back up. And it's just a very long, slow process. And certain things like electrostimulation are really bad for you because your nerves have been stripped and they're trying to heal. So there's certain things that you can't do as well. So it's kind of a touchy condition that way because you're still healing while you're going through rehab and trying to build up your strength. And mine was, was so intense that it affected my entire upper body and my entire lower body with the exception of the bottom of my feet. So... Um, with some people, it might affect half their body, and then they're able to rely on other parts to kind of start building up and have that confidence. But uh, when you have such an intense overall body weakness, it takes a little bit longer to get back on your feet, for mm -hmm. sure. So yeah, you mentioned pain, you mentioned pain as your muscles were starting to atrophy. Within yeah. that pain, and obviously, you're you've got pain meds to help you cope with this, I guess, as well. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't, I cannot put myself in this experience. It is just, it blows my mind. I can't believe that you went through this. Okay. So my question was going to be, if you were touched, did it hurt? Or was it just constantly that underneath kind of the surface of your skin everywhere, you were just constantly in a pain that you could register? Because I think I was thinking that if you were essentially paralyzed, from the neck down, you wouldn't feel anything, but you were saying that you were in pain. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. A lot of people think that, which is what, which you know what? Yeah. It, it's a really hard thing to explain. So <laughs> the, it hurt when some people touch certain parts of my body and I can't explain why. Um, but it didn't hurt when people touched others. So for example, my legs were atrophying, but it felt really good. And, and they, and they did have nerve pain but it felt really good when they got a good like a, a massage because it, it hurt so much that my my muscles were atrophying there but in certain areas of my body I had more intense nerve pain so my arms my chest cavity and my face the nerve pain there was was quite extensive so my skin was was really red to look at and I was like constantly the shade of a tomato and it felt like I was on fire. So it's kind of a pain that radiates from, from within. And then for a really long time, it hurt to touch my face. So you get this reduced sensation when, when you touch something. So it's slowly getting better. But if I touch something with my hand, like if I touch something soft, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel the same way that it usually did because my, uh, my nerves that register what touch sensation feel like are, are not the same. So it's so difficult, and it's something that a lot of people who have had Guillain-Barre try to explain, but you're an intense nerve pain. It does hurt to be touched in certain places. It doesn't hurt in other places. So it's not one consistent 
thing across the board on your body. It depends where you've been attacked and how intensely you've mm-hmm. been attacked. But there is an uh, on-fire sensation coming from basically under your skin. There's no other way to say it. And it's it's just your nerves that have been completely stripped. So it's just mm-hmm. this internal pain that's just radiating out. And the problem with the burning nerve pain is that it's it's difficult to treat with drugs directly. So there's some drugs that have secondary effects that, that help with nerve pain. But a lot of the time you're you're given, I guess, intense painkillers. So you don't basically don't care about it as much mm-hmm. as, as you would normally, right? Mm-hmm. It, it helps you get to sleep and it helps give you some peace. But it's, it's kind of difficult to treat nerve pain with a direct drug that was originally intended for that. So a lot of nerve pain drugs have a lot of side effects as well. Mm-hmm. So um, there's lots of people who have a really hard time getting off those, those drugs, but there's other effects to them as well. So yeah, it, nerve pain is a very odd thing. It's, and it's very difficult to explain but the only way that I could explain it is yes it feels like you've been set on fire and you don't feel the same things you used to when you touch things so for example they they had um here's a good example they had a they had a program where they were bringing dogs in for as visitors which I loved and they would put a treat in my hand so I could give it to the dog and they of course hold my hand to the dog but I couldn't really feel their fur the way that I usually would mm-hmm. so just because your sense of touch is completely gone and I couldn't see them but I appreciated the visit <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that that sensation is is not the same as it used to be, and it still isn't because I still have pins and needles in my fingers. Those mm-hmm. tiny nerve nerves will take very long and might not ever be the same way they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost feels like you've been sitting on your hand for a long time, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And- well, I'm wondering with anything else with pain that you can't describe or can't announce this hurts or you can't communicate in a way if you're in pain or someone has touched you and you can't communicate that it hurts how do you get by that how do you get through that yeah so for me um it was really important to have my family in the room a lot because what I did to communicate when something and I didn't so this is one thing that I try I had to make everyone understand eventually. If I was going through moderate pain, I wouldn't announce it. It was only when I got to intense pain, because I was always in pain. So it was only if my arm was being completely bent backwards, for example. Like something had gone wrong with being turned into a new position, or something was pulling, or something was really wrong. But how would you announce that? I would announce it by shaking my foot. So if my foot was shaking, almost like you're shaking your head back and forth, if my foot was shaking that way, that meant something was wrong. Okay. Or if it was, (laughs) if it was going in a circle. And the problem with not having your family there sometimes to advocate, you know, some nurses are are incredible and the, and they're very cognizant of your whole body because they understand you're paralyzed. But in the middle of the night and stuff, when you get into those 12 hour shifts and it's four in the morning, I, st- I got scared not having my family there because I-, I knew they'd be looking at my whole body and making sure that everything wasn't bending the wrong way or something like that. And, and because they knew and they knew my personality, so they knew that I wouldn't shake my foot if it was something minor. So there were a few times where I was biting my tongue really hard and I was worried I was going to sever it. It was so bad. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of because I was ventilated, they had to turn me in a very specific way to to make sure that that vent uh, stayed attached basically so that it didn't come off. And there were a few times where it was just, it was just an odd position or something and I was biting down on my tongue or, or my arm was caught under me or something like that. And that's why it was so important for me to have those supports there. And I'm so grateful for that because not everyone has that. Mm-hmm. And it's different if you're completely out. I mean, it's not good if you're if something like that's going on. But if you're completely out, it's a different situation. But what I did find very challenging when I couldn't talk is that it was really hard to get people's attention. I couldn't cry out or tell mm-hmm. them something had hurt. Yeah. So basically, at, with and probably the same for a lot of Guillain-Barre patients, is you get used to a certain level of pain. If something's uncomfortable, but you know it's only going to last a few more minutes and it takes too long to spell it out, just let it go. If it's really bad and you're worried something bad's going to happen, then it's time to shake your foot, <laughs> in my case, and let them know, okay, something's off. You know, we need to fix something. So that was how I communicated. But I did have a lot of 
dreams when I was in the hospital of people performing entire procedures on me and me not being able to tell them that they had the wrong patient or that's not what I'm supposed to be getting or mm -hmm. you know you have those nightmares because you're completely you lose all control when you've had complete control your entire yeah. life up to that point right mm -hmm. so well ever since you could talk anyway right so yeah So who's monitoring you during all of this? I mean, you said that your family was there a lot and then there's shift nurses and whatever, but did you ever have anyone that was quite consistent besides your family that was helping monitor exactly what it was that you found a lot of trust in and that you just felt better when they walked in the room? Yeah. So I had primary nurses, which is great. So a nurse will ask the patient if they're comfortable with them being a primary care nurse. And I had a few that wanted to be my primary care nurse, which I'm so grateful for. And they, and they knew me. So they knew if Mallory's shaking her foot, there's actually a very big issue. <laughs> so we need to stop. And they knew Mallory likes to sit in this position and she, and you know, that she likes this sort of care. And so there, there was a rotation of about four different women, I believe I had four primaries, who, you know, when, when it was their shift, they were assigned to me, which is great consistency when you're in the intensive care. I was in the intensive care unit for four months. So it was really important to have that level of consistency. The other thing with that is that if a primary care nurse was on that was so great with me and knew what I needed, my family had a break. Mm -hmm. So they felt like they could walk away and, you know, I wouldn't have a traumatizing story to spell out for them basically in the morning. Um, so that was a really big relief to them. They felt better when they were on too. And also I got so much more sleep because I would, I would kind of lay awake some nights worrying uh, that I wouldn't be able to call someone. So you'd have a call bell, but using a call bell when you're paralyzed is, is quite complicated. So yeah, is that positioned by your feet too in this case? So it wasn't, uh, I don't know, we should have looked into something like that. But what happened was there was a part where I could just lift my finger just enough to push on, on the button or they'd put it under my hand so that I could just put enough pressure down on it. But what would happen was it would slip in the night. So I had a few nights where it slipped and I couldn't get to it, but there was something wrong. So I had intense pain or something like that, but I learned a way around that. And that was that you just, you just, <laughs> this sounds awful, but you just almost internally scream and then your blood pressure goes up. And because you're in the intensive care unit, the nurse is watching your blood pressure uh -huh. and she comes in and then you just tell her what's wrong. <laughs> so that was oh my way my around gosh. it. You know, I just said, okay, just freak yourself out, Mal, and then she'll come in. So I would just, just imagine something that made me very mad. And yeah. I would just, I, and you know, you can't actually scream because you no. can't talk. But, um, but I would just, you know, have this like moment of a meltdown and, and then she'd come in and then it would instantly just drop and then mm -hmm. I would just tell her what was wrong. So that was what I, that's the system I came and I had to use it a few times, unfortunately, because those bells are attached to a wire and it would just slip in the night. So yeah, so there are a few, a few nights like that where I had trouble sleeping but with a primary care. I, I slept a lot better just because I knew that they knew me very well. Mm -hmm. You could relax a bit more. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, I had no trouble getting to sleep when I had those people on with me. Was there any sort of daily routine? I mean, you, you kind of say sleeping. I, I can't imagine that your day would be a typical day because you're in the hospital on a bed for four months. Yeah. So you have typical rounds in the morning and you have your um, occupational therapy. So learning how to do fine motor things or learning what chair is going to fit you when, when you get to the point where you can sit up in a chair. And then you have, um, you always have physical therapy. So even if you're lying in bed, you, you always have your physical therapy appointment during the day. Um, in the beginning, physical therapy was, they were moving my arms and legs to make sure that they didn't stiffen entirely so that they were kind of locked. So they were kind of stretching my arms out to the side and moving my legs up. And uh, it was really, really felt nice for my limbs to move because they had, they just didn't move otherwise, right? Unless I asked my family to move them. But uh, physical therapy in the beginning was just doing that. And it actually made me fall asleep a few times because mm -hmm. it was so relaxing and felt so nice for my mm -hmm. limbs to move. But later on, once I had the strength, I would sit at the edge of the bed and we would do foot exercises or we would do arm exercises. So physical therapy for me, because of my personality and I really like hard work and I like goals. It was really 
the highlight of my day was physical therapy because we were actually working towards something. I didn't know what it was, but we were working towards something. So I was really excited every time the physiotherapist came in. Mm-hmm. So typically in a day, it's quite boring. You're, it's a long day in the intensive care unit. You know, you have your you have your rounds where a nurse starts and they have to do an assessment every time a new nurse comes on. So they do their typical full body assessment. Um, I was on tube feeds for a long time. So there was no meals um, or anything like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, but the appointments were kind of the highlight of my day in the intensive care unit during that time. So yeah. So in terms mm. of a schedule, yes, for for in terms of what the shift had to do when mm-hmm. they had to give me my meds, um, when they had to give me my feeds. But other than that, just the appointments to kind of work towards getting somewhere were, were really the highlight. And you had no idea of a time frame. You had no idea how long this would last. Nothing. No, none at all. Um, it's different for everyone. So there's no standard answer. The thing I found discouraging and my family as well is when you look up Guillaume-Barre, they say a poor prognosis is when you're not walking within six months, which we never really like to hear because my breathing was so weak for such a long time that it, it held me in the intensive care unit for four months. So I, you know, by the end, I was quite a healthy intensive care patient in comparison to the people around me, but we couldn't get my breathing to strengthen enough to get me out of there for a while. So I wasn't in intense therapy. I I certainly couldn't start off in a pool, which eventually I did when I went into physiotherapy. So hearing that, you know, if you're not walking in six months, it's poor, it makes you feel like, okay, well, that's the end then. I guess poor. Um, the good thing about people who've had Guillain-Barre syndrome is because there's there's such little information. There's a lot of groups of, so there's, there's Facebook groups and so on where people ask each other questions who have had it. And there's a lot of people on there who were paralyzed for a long time, far past the six month mark and, and walk now. So in this case, the official medical research isn't necessarily the best source mm-hmm. if you're trying to look for encouragement or a better outcome because after six months, they consider it a poor prognosis, even though you could walk after six months. So for me, I had no idea when it would end. I had no idea if I would walk again because for some people, it's such an intense condition that they don't. And that's one of the worst parts is not knowing. You're bored, you have nothing to think about but your pain, and you don't know when it's going to end, which is unfortunate. It's just you're very much locked inside and it's very boring and it's very sad. So the whole thing kind of picked up in, you know, how I was feeling when I got transferred to rehab. It got a lot more positive after that because you're really, it was inpatient rehab. It was constant work and that was where I needed to be. So that was perfect. How did you cope? I mean, mentally, that is such a struggle. I, like I said earlier, I just have a really hard time placing myself emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, where you would have been for four months. And I'm just so curious on how you found peace in the terrible situation that you were in. Yeah. And I find that interesting because all people deal with trauma in different ways and we all get through it in our own way. Right. So no one person handles it the same way. And I've, I've heard a lot of people say that they couldn't have handled it, but um, I think everyone would, they would just do it in their own way. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, I had an extremely strong support network. So it wasn't only my family and friends, but it was the broader community. I had people back home, taking care of the house, taking care of the pets, you know, doing all the maintenance. I had people sending me letters, you know, tons of people praying for me, tons of people checking in. And that's, that's part of the strength is knowing that so many people are behind you. And then also the Kingston family, (laughs) I call them family, but the coworkers and the friends in Kingston, they were, they had my back too. But I also had, this is another added stress that a lot of people have when they have young children or they have a job that won't hold on for them. That's another added stress. I had the luxury of saying, I can't focus on my life right now. I have to entirely focus on getting better. And it was something I was able to do in my position, which not many people have that luxury. They have the added pylon of their life slipping away while they're in hospital. So for me, a lot of my strength was my support. And I'm very aware of that. I had a really decent job. I still have a very good job with good benefits. So I knew that that was happening and I have supports there. I knew that I could go when I was out of the hospital eventually. And even if I, if I was in a wheelchair or whatever the situation was going to end up being, 
my parents' home was very accessible, so I knew that I could move in there. And that's another huge bonus to, I at least had a place to go, right? Once I got out of hospital. Mm -hmm. Another thing I did to cope was anytime they said, you should try this to get better, I was all for it because focusing on goals and hard work and at least trying to achieve something was extremely important to me. And kind of focusing on feeling better and feeling healthier over focusing on physical disability. So I, I got to a point where I was so, I was so uh, kind of close to slipping away and unhealthy that as soon as I started to feel better physically, even though I wasn't walking yet, you know, which is the goal, it was just, I knew the difference between terrible health and just feeling terrible and awful and feeling like you're just, you're close to death and then feeling like you're getting healthier. So there was a steady upkick eventually, you know, when I started to breathe on my own, when I could talk on my own, when I could eat again on my own, you know, when I could get out of bed and get in my chair, there was a point where I was getting worse, but it didn't last as long as the constant, you know, the, the getting better. Everything was progressing eventually. So you do cope mentally when you're having improvements like that, that come pretty steadily as well. And really it was a strong mental focus on my body getting healthier, but not necessarily, I knew there was going to be a new normal, but it wasn't necessarily just entirely focused on ability, but the fact that I was feeling better too. Mm -hmm. And that was really important. And I, I do think too, that throughout the process, it helped to engage with the disabled community and know that your life isn't over. If, if you do end up in a chair or, you know, if you're a wheelchair user or you do end up with an assistive device, it, you know, there are tons of supports to, to adjust yourself to that life change and you can, and you still have a very fulfilling life. It's just, everyone has struggles, has things they deal with. And that's just another thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was really important to wrap my mind around that mentally too. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, yes, this thing happened, but there's, you know, there's still life after this too. Mm -hmm. And and something I will mention is that humor was important <laughs> to yeah, me because sure. I like to joke and that was extremely, especially when I could talk again, there were a lot of points where I wanted to joke, but I would have to spell it out alphabetically, yeah. which would have been way too much work. <laughs> yeah. So I had to let it go in the conversation, but my best friend and my parents brought the jokes around me, which is, well, you know, when it was appropriate, which mm -hmm. was good. I will say too, that escapism was important. So my friend reread all of Harry Potter to me because mm -hmm. I love Harry Potter. Yeah. So that was good. And it, it was a world that doesn't even exist in our world. So it's really good to get away from what's happening now and just think about that. Mm -hmm. um, we also did, you know, what could you look forward to? So I could look forward to going on a vacation someday or visiting people that I love to visit or think about what you want to eat or drink when you're able to eat and drink again. So mm -hmm. looking forward to the future was important too. Mm -hmm. That's a long answer answer to your <laughs> no it's it's amazing okay <laughs> you're just able to articulate it in such a way that it's hard to understand but it's easy to understand it in the same way and I don't know <laughs> yeah and I I think it's important to, to recognize too a lot of people have different recoveries and they have they have different networks around them too but it's important to recognize where I was very fortunate and that that's definitely how I got through it mm-hmm yeah. You mentioned earlier, and I wanted to double back to the fact that you said you thought you were going to slip away at one point. Mm -hmm. What mentally at that point would help pull you through if you're kind of at a point that do you do you remember anything in particular about your mindset at that stage? Yeah, I remember that when I was in. Um, so when I was being transferred to KGH, yeah, in in that stage, I was really s slipping physically and, and it was kind of difficult to even stay alert at the time. But I had the thought and I, I do know that I asked, which upset them, but I asked my family members if I was dying because I wasn't sure what was going on. I think it was harder for the people around me <laughs> mm -hmm. than it was it was for me because I was so acutely ill. So I think for the people who had to see it, had to be asked. I think it was really difficult for them. <laughs> I will say more so than I was so, I was so drugged up. And, uh, and when I was, um, being transported, 
through the air there. I was, I was in such a terrible condition that I barely knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would say that it was much more challenging for the people around me, for sure, Mm -hmm. who were completely cognizant of everything that was happening. The conversations that were happening around you, you were completely aware of as well throughout the entire time? Yeah, I will say quite early on when they, when I had tubes all down my throat and when you first go in and you get your treatment, they, they put you into a induced coma. So that last lasted for a little while. So I missed a few conversations when that was happening. And I know when I was in my induced coma, my heart rate slowed dangerously. So there were a few issues that way as well. So I know that a lot was happening and it's probably a blur to my family now, but a lot was happening in that time. Um, when I started to come back too, I was on a lot of painkillers and they were um, intravenous and also um, anxiety medication. So I would have moments of clarity, but then I would have moments where I was having kind of intense hallucinations. So I thought a bunch of people were standing over me and staring at me, or I thought I thought once I was in a Spanish villa. There, there's very odd hallucinations yeah. that happened throughout this time, and I remember them very well. And they didn't make sense for what I could hear around me, but it didn't matter. So I knew the conversations that ha- were happening. People could ask me questions. I remember some scary spots where I couldn't breathe very well. If they had to lay me, lay me flat, and and if my connection came off on my ventilator. There are a few times where I felt like I was drowning and I couldn't breathe. So I, I very much remember the scary parts, but there are a few parts that are a bit blurry just because I was having so many hallucinations in the very beginning. And then as they started to kind of wing me off of the intense medications, that's where things come back more sharply. Um, and that's where the pain was a lot worse too because they're trying they're trying to make sure that they're they're getting you on a schedule where they're reducing the amount of pain meds you, you're on because you have to start getting better if you can. So everything hurts terribly. Everything's very overwhelming. You're very, very anxious because you, you start to realize what's really going on. And those are the really hard parts. I had pneumonia twice. The second time was very intense. They were trying to wean me off the ventilator because they didn't realize I had pneumonia yet. So there were some scary parts with that. I had a blood infection, which was not good too. So I had very terrible fevers and you're kind of laying in bed with a terrible fever. And so there was a few really bad spots through there that I remember quite acutely. And then there's parts where, you know, I I get my pain meds and I start to feel better for a little bit, but then it all comes back again. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's kind of that cycle of you're, you're really not feeling great. And uh, yeah, and I do remember the pain. I don't look back on it very much, but I do remember it. <laughs> I try not to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So You're into the recovery stage and how long was it before you were able to just be at home and start to just kind of work through your rehabilitation at home? Yeah, so I was in the intensive care unit for four months and then I was in inpatient rehab for five. So I was in Kingston for nine months and then I came home, uh, it was at the end of January in 2018 is when I came and I call home my parents home because it was, um, that's where I came home to. And, uh, I had a power wheelchair, which was great because it was the way I got around the house because I, I could walk a little bit. It had taken me seven and a half months to take my first step in rehab. So my walking was very weak and very shaky. So and my wheelchair was adapted specifically for me so I could sit in it for long periods of time. So um, I started to get back into a pattern there. I had my chair and I was in my parents' house and I was going to outpatient rehab at the Halliburton uh, Hospital there. So um, when I first started going, I still had my two-wheel walker. So it has the kind of the stoppers on the on the back where the two wheels would be at the back, um, which is more stable when you're first learning to walk. And then you eventually progress to a four wheel walker. And when you first do that, it feels like it's running away from Mm -hmm. you because it just there's too much movement. Right. Um, But the advantage to that one is that you can sit on it. So if you're going for a little walk, you can take a seat and kind of relax to have enough energy to walk again. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you progress to walking sticks and then you progress to, you know, if, if you're recovery is going well, you're progressed to walking independently. So the good thing was for me, um, when I was leaving rehab, I was able to walk from one end of Providence Care is a very long hospital. And I was able to walk from one end to the other. And 
they kind of brought my chair along behind me in case I need to take a seat, but I didn't. And it was just kind of like a victory lap at the Mm -hmm. very end. So it was a really good way to leave, Mm -hmm. to have that really nice moment where I could walk. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's not, uh, it's not always that good of an outcome, but it, it was, I was very lucky that way. So it was great for me, but yeah, it was, it was the end of January and I'd, I'd gone into hospital in in April the year before. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to bring up something that you mentioned to me when we did our pre-recording chat. Yeah. You mentioned that something that surprised you but actually really helped you was coming to terms with being paralyzed for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that you were okay with that. Can you speak to that? I that was important in the beginning. I was I was, you know, doctors have to make sure that you're ready for a reality that you might uh you might face. And I was 30 when I got sick and not used to disability at all. So I had no experience with it at all. And I think it would have been easy to, you know, think why me or get over consumed with your life going in a direction you didn't want it to. But the the internet's a wonderful thing. And so I actually connected with Spinal Cord Ontario, which they support a lot of people who've had spinal cord injuries and their life has changed and they have a new life. They have a new normal where they figure out how their life's going to work. And it was important to me to understand my own resilience and that I could do that if I needed to. My life would not be over. I would still be the same person. My brain is the same, you know, and I could just figure out how to make things work. And I think coming to terms with that was important because I was hearing a lot of negativity, not necessarily negativity. I was hearing a lot of hard truths about how my condition was very severe. It was full body. It might not have a good prognosis. And I think it's important to hear that. Um, it hurts <laughs> sometimes, but it's important to hear it because it's important for you to work hard, but focus on your health, but not have unrealistic expectations of, or, of where you ideally think you should go. And uh, I, it was important for me to accept that and just do what I could and work really hard and try really hard and focus on feeling healthy and feeling better. And I think it was easier, like I think I've mentioned before, because I was so close to death. It was easier for me to accept that too. So that helped Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And I met amazing people who, you know, they, they live with various disabilities and they, and they live completely fulfilling lives, obviously, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's something where, yeah, it's too bad. It, it's not what you plan, but such is life. And, mm-hmm. you, and everyone figures out how to move on when they, you know, when they have these hard situations. So that was really important for my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you at risk of this returning? Um, your risk is slightly high, heightened when you've had it the first time, just minor, <laughs> but it's not a high risk. So if it's happened the first time, it could possibly return, it could possibly happen again, but it, it's, it's not significantly higher than a stranger's chance of getting it. Mm-hmm. What I find nerve wracking is I, I I had pneumonia twice and and the second time it was quite devastating and it caused quite a bit of um, uh, lung scarring and so on. And so I'm afraid to get pneumonia again. That, that wouldn't be good. I don't really want to get the flu either. Um, and then, of course, there's that nagging. It's not necessarily a rational fear, but there's that fear in the back of your head that you could get it again. Of course, I say it isn't rational, but no one would have assumed you would have gotten it in the first place, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's that thought in the back of your head where you think, oh, you know, I might get it again. So I don't really want to get... So, for example, with, with what's going on right now with COVID-19, it's such a novel virus that the human body hasn't experienced yet. So I don't really like the idea of getting that because mm-hmm. my immune system wouldn't know how to handle it. It would have to find, figure out a way to handle it. And because my immune system performs so strangely with this other infection, I don't want to get this new respiratory mm-hmm. infection. So there mm-hmm. is that fear. And I- I've heard people say, well, your immune system's weak. Well, my immune system isn't weak. It nearly killed me. It's, it's quite strong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it reacted inappropriately. So the fear is that it doesn't know instinctively what it should be doing. 
So that fear is always in the back of your mind when you're, mm-hmm. you know, when you're getting a vaccination or, when, or, you know, I still get vaccinated because the risk of actually getting things is, is worse. But when you're getting vaccinated with a live virus or when there's a virus going around, I do have kind of a heightened anxiety about it. Of course you would. I won't lie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it too is just, it kind of knocks you out when you, when you get these viruses. And, and for me, because I had all over nerve damage, I move very normally and I, I, you know, I go to work and I can do various things, but because I'm still recovering from nerve damage and probably will be for years, things are more taxing for me than the average person. So I might need more naps or, you know, a a normal day might be a little bit more exhausting for me just because I'm still slowly, you know, recovering from what, what happened to me. So for that, you don't really want to get too bad of a sickness either because you'll be out for quite a while mm-hmm. trying to recover from it as well. So so really working from home is super beneficial for you as well. Is that something that you think that you'll be able to continue for a while after this? Yeah, my, my workplace has been extremely accommodating with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I, I'm completely set up to work from home, awesome, which has been great. And with the way our IT department has really kind of set up all these electronic meetings and stuff, there's your really good accessibility to everything you need, right? So this has been really beneficial to me. I also hope going forward, society changes a bit in their idea of coming into work, even if you're sick, because for people who, not even just people like me, you know, people who have gone through cancer treatment or anything like that, you know, they shouldn't be getting these illnesses that are unnecessary, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as the world changes with more electronic means of participation becoming normal, Mm -hmm. I kind of hope that uh, people don't feel the need to come in and spread germs if they they don't, if they don't need to, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's my hope for after this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if this has taught us anything, it's that working from home is doable. I mean, obviously not with kids ripping around at the same time, but exactly so many jobs can be done from an alternative location. Absolutely. And for me, I'm very productive at home. It's not, it's not the case for everyone, especially people with young kids. I can't imagine, but Mm -hmm. I'm extremely productive from home. And it's great for me because I guess getting ready to go out the door and and being on all day in public is more exhausting for me than being at home for sure. So I think that helps with my production as well. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's good that this has taught us that a lot of services can function quite well when people are working from home. Mm-hmm. So and that's been a good lesson out of this for sure. I love that you just said lessons because my next question was going to be is what is one lesson that your experience taught you that you carry with you every day? I I think it's taught me what it's like to to live in a disabled body and kind of be way more aware of all the barriers that are around us not even just with physical barriers but there's there's several you know and kind of look at things from a different lens for how we can accommodate you know we talk about working from home it's something that the disabled community has been kind of pushing for for a while and, and weren't accommodated, right? But in, but when this virus came on, you know, suddenly it was okay for a lot of people to work from home. So I think li- living in a disabled body, seeing barriers and and realizing how much work we have ahead of us to kind of make our world a lot accessible for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's been that's been an important lesson. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I was always a pragmatic and kind of no nonsense person, but this is really kind of push that out mm-hmm. <laughs> even further and just to realize that life is is short and we have a limited amount of energy that we should spend wisely and and uh, focus on on our time on people and, and things that support us as that's well right. so yeah. that's been really really important you know what's important in your life what makes you happy what makes you healthy mm-hmm. so that's been a very important lesson too for sure yeah I'm losing my voice from talking so much <laughs> Yeah. Get a drink of water. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was another odd thing to, to note. But when I was learning to talk again, I, I didn't realize that when you talk, you talk on your exhale, right? So when you're getting your breathing back and you're getting your lung capacity back, you have to take in really deep breaths in order to talk, right? So it took a really long time for me to be able to do that. I had to be sitting up a while for gravity to help my diaphragm work and take really deep breaths in and then as you breathe out, you talk. Mm -hmm. So it was such, that's an example of something that I never considered 
would be that much effort, but it was so much effort for me when I was yeah. recovering, trying to talk again. And then, of course, my tongue was half paralyzed, so it was kind of like talking around your tongue. Oh my gosh, that took a while too. Yeah, yeah. Relearning how to use your body. Yeah, it's and you know my occupational therapist said it when he had his daughter watching her learn how to walk was so odd because it was very similar to people who are relearning to walk too when they've had trauma or they've had illness the way that they hold their hands out, the way that they kind of curl their fingers into claws, ready to grab something, the way that they're so unsteady, it's very similar to when a toddler learning how to walk, right? So, and I felt that way too, when my sense of balance was really thrown off by my Miller Fisher, it really affected that part of my brain. So I was, when I was learning to walk, I had my arms out almost in a (laughs) T-Rex, ready to grab anything if I fell. And very unsure. And, and it, it did look a little bit like a toddler, which, you know, is what it is. We all learn how to rewalk like we learned how to walk originally. So mm-hmm. it was uh, anyway. Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting point. Yeah. I thank you so much for sharing this experience with us. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I I feel so grateful that you were yeah. so open just to, to share this experience, especially because, like you said, for one in a hundred thousand people to go through this and then an even smaller amount of them to have it to the extent that you did at the age that you did. I mean, that rarity really speaks to yeah. like I, it may kind of makes me think about how someone like yourself, like you say, you're pragmatic and you're, you're very determined, right? You've got that willpower and that resilience to push through and to do your best. And that even, I mean, your physical therapy, you said, said was the highlight of your day because it gave you something to work towards. I feel like a person like yourself, who's as articulate as you are to share your experience is, it's incredible to listen to because there's also such a tone of positivity in everything that you've just relayed. Yeah, that's, and a few people were surprised by that, but it's kind of how you get through too, right? You need to, so you need to face some hard truths, which I I think for a lot of people, that's a really difficult hump to get over. But I I will say it's very difficult as well when you don't have all the supports you need around you too, right? Mm -hmm. Like part of realizing it's going to be okay is knowing that you have people around you that will help you. It's not all internal strength. It's it's community as well. So mm. I do think that's a big hump for a lot of people and positivity and, and hard work. I am naturally pragmatic to, <laughs> I would say to a fault, but very no nonsense to a fault too. But I will say there are points too where I completely broke down temporarily and then you know, and I'm always so hard on myself. I would say, well, crying's not helping. Crying's not helping. As soon as I start crying, I start saying, well, this isn't helpful. But I had people around me that said, uh, you have a terrible situation <laughs> you're dealing with. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's it's good to have people around and that you're allowed to. And mm-hmm. if it helps you the next day to work hard again. You know, I remember just being devastated one day because I my tube feeds weren't agreeing with me. By the way, when I got back onto, like, uh, it was a minced diet, which is disgusting. But as soon as I got back onto it, my body completely corrected itself. It it was amazing how much better I felt on real food. Mm -hmm. But I was on this two-fee diet, and it was just not agreeing with me, and I just felt terrible. It almost presented like a gastro flu with me. And I remember one day... I was so exhausted because my stomach had been upset the whole night and it's it's gross to describe, but I'd been gagging, but I didn't have the strength to throw up, obviously. So it was just awful. It was just all night. And uh, I didn't have the strength the next day to do my physio. And I remember just feeling so devastated because it was so important to me to, to work on something because it was like the positive part of my day. And my physiotherapist was hilarious and very energetic. People who work in the intensive care unit are amazing people. Like I can't imagine Imagine being that positive and upbeat and having that sort of personality when you're working in a place like that. But they're amazing people. So, yeah, it, seeing him was a highlight of my day. 
not only because it felt better to work on something, but at least you were, you were doing something right. You, the rest of your day, you're kind of sitting there and, and receiving care or just waiting for your next round of pills or something like that. And yeah, physio was good. And so was when I started speech therapy, that was another thing that helped. And my, your speech pathologist helps you eat. So they check your swallow and they make sure that you're able to do that. So all of that, all of that stuff meant we were working towards recovery and feeling better. And that was the thing I had to focus on. And I focused on it very intensely. So Mm -hmm. that helped me get through for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us, honestly. No problem. If you had a message for the listeners, anything, now this is just super open-ended, what would it be? (sighs) I think, I think just focus on what's important to you, uh, what makes you happy, what makes you healthy. And (laughs) if you want something good in your life, go for it, (laughs) maybe, Mm -hmm. because, you know, might not be a lot of time. So yeah, you'd have a a totally different outlook on life now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Oh, anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mallory, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this experience with my listeners and I on The Safe Haven. I feel so honored to have held space for you while you shared your stories. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart, surprised you, or inspired you, which I am sure it has, please screenshot the screen while you're listening send it to all your friends, and share it in your social media accounts. Please be sure to tag us so that we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review, even better, or leave a juicy five-star rating, that really helps this podcast grow. For more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, and I will talk to you next week.